What do you get by mixing science, healthcare innovation, love for words, marketing, and creative communication? The answer is John Nosta, who you're going to hear from in this episode of Faces of Digital Health with me, Tiasha Zait. John has been the number one influencer in the digital health space for quite a few years. He describes himself as being a cantankerous thinker who enjoys spending more time with his ideas than with people. His career started in a research lab at Harvard Medical School until he redirected his creative energy into marketing. About six years ago, John founded Nosta Labs, a think tank helping life science companies navigate change by addressing their problems through unconventional thinking and leveraging creativity. Among other things, he is a member of the Google Health Advisory Board, and you can regularly read his observations on digital health in Forbes. In this episode, you will hear what he sees startups and companies are doing wrong when trying to present their products to the wider audience. We spoke about the opportunities of voice recognition in healthcare, rise of data gathering and the changing thinking about the data ownership and value. But first, a slight detour to music preferences. John, do you listen to John Bon Jovi? Do I? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story about John Bon Jovi. Um, my mom, when she was alive, was watching television one day, and she saw this guy on television. This is many years ago, and his name was John Bon Jovi. So she's watching it and said, wow, he's pretty good. And she picked up the telephone and called her best friend, her very best friend, whose name is Betty. And she said, Betty, uh, I'm watching this on television. He has the same last name as you. And Betty said, oh, that's my grandson. So John Bon Jovi uh, was a good friend of my mom. So yes, I do listen to John Bon Jovi. He's a family friend. And we also went to high school together. That's what I was wondering, because I was looking at the Wikipedia webpage about you, and it says that you were classmates. Yes, he was only there for a year. Um, he wasn't, well, let's put it this way. John was interested in his music, not so much in the curriculum, I guess. What were you interested in? Oh, I was interested in science. I absolutely loved science, physics, mathematics. Um, you know, for much of my life growing up, um, I was always interested in, in how things work. Mm -hmm. And my father was an electrical engineer, and he would bring home um, different things from work, devices, electrical meters, and I would take them apart. So I think that that's always been uh, an interest of mine. Yes, you have a background in science. At the beginning of your career, you were a researcher at Harvard Medical School. And um, I was wondering how you went to marketing from there. It's an interesting story. I was very much entrenched in science, in basic science, working at a famous lab at Harvard. And I've actually published papers and built relationships with many thought leaders in the field who are still, uh, you know, some of the top thinkers in medicine today. Um, because I started when I was young, I think that I reached a point where I 
broadened my interest beyond science into creative thought, into innovation, into writing, and ultimately ended up looking at what I believe is an important element of innovation, and that's empowering innovation through communication. I believe that today, many innovators, whether it be a new product or even a new clinical concept, such as a treatment paradigm, are tremendously hampered by the ability of the marketplace to absorb or understand that innovation. The way we communicate and the way we drive change into a social system or marketplace was very interesting to me. So what kind of uh, companies did you work with in the early stages of your marketing career? Most of the companies were the large traditional companies like pharmaceutical companies as well as the large medical device companies. You have to realize that, that in those days, most of the life science companies tended to be bigger life science, pharma, or medical device companies. We are now in a unique era in human history where the innovative spirit is much more popular. So startups are much more common. Is there anything that you could say is, in your opinion, most difficult to communicate? Or is there any advice that you would have for companies that are struggling with their communications? Two fundamental issues is one is being able to articulate a single-minded vision. Understand what your point of difference is. And this is, this is simple to articulate, but quite complex. Most of the life science companies now, the pharmaceutical companies, are completely obsessed with the notion of patient centricity. And all the CEOs and all the marketers say, everything we do, we do for the patient. And they go through a traditional value ladder where they take a They take a feature, something that they do or something that the drug does, and they ladder it up to a benefit, and then they ladder that benefit up to a value. And the value becomes the same for every company and every product. It ultimately becomes defined by a term like, I've got my life back, or innovation for life, or patience and life. And it becomes highly undifferentiated. So, You know, my first point is pharmaceutical companies and life science companies have to recognize that, that laddering up to the value becomes largely indistinguishable. So staying at a feature um, or even a benefit could be a powerful tool. The second thing is that they often don't really create sharp, single-minded positioning statements. They create bundles of benefits. They create a product profile. So their service, their app, their drug is safe, effective, once a day, well-tolerated, patient-friendly, on formulary. It becomes this constellation of benefits that no one, that no one will remember. And ultimately, what they have to realize is that single-minded point of difference is not their entire brand. It's just the point to stimulate the customer to say the magic words. And those magic words are, tell me more. I call this problem Bob. Bob always shows up at a, at a meeting and he's the bundle of benefits. And you do not position around a bundle of benefits because not only is your message completely diluted, but the visuals required to create around safe, effective, once a day, well tolerated, whatever the cluster of benefits may be, is almost nothing except for one thing, and that's the smiling patient. And that's why we see every single pharmaceutical ad, every single life science ad, is some physician shaking the patient's hand or some patient with their hand up in the air saying, I've got my life back. Whether it's erectile dysfunction 
or arthritis. It doesn't matter. It's the same core image. And that's because it's built upon bad strategy. So I, I challenge my clients to think. It's very hard. Abraham Lincoln said, if you have eight hours to chop down a tree, spend six of them sharpening your axe. And, and that's part of the challenge here is that you have to focus your thinking. And that, that really helps you provide a message that's not only differentiated, but effective and economical. Most innovators don't have a big budget for marketing. In fact, most innovators think that they're so smart that they could figure out the marketing on their own and they leave it to an afterthought. And that's why they end up doing something that is tragic. They wink in the dark. They know what they're doing, but no one else does. Digital health space is expanding rapidly in terms of the number of startups uh, and the amount of funding that's going uh, in the space. What I'm finding in the digital health space, in the health tech space today, is that the large traditional life science company, the pharma and the device companies, are not being pushed aside. I think that's a myth. People think that these companies are dinosaurs. In fact, I think that's quite quite wrong. Um, what we're seeing is that the natural business progression of many of these startups is not uh, along the route of the initial public offering. It's along the route of the acquisition. And this is reflected in last year's data. In the year 2017, there were zero, none. Uh, there were no initial public offerings for digital health companies. They were all bought or purchased. And, and here's the magic. Uh, that means that life science companies, the big companies like pharma, are buying digital health companies as a tool of innovation. And this is, this is important because in today's world, we have the proverbial three-legged stool. And innovation is built around, one, the lightning bolt. What's the idea? What's the magic? What's that, that idea that can change things? Number two is clinical validation. We need to understand if this innovation has practical as well as scientific validity. So that's the role of the clinical trial. And the third is market access. And again, that gets back to the diffusion of innovation. So we need to either reach physicians or patients or consumers. And large pharma companies have the infrastructure for the last two. They can do the trial and they can reach markets. So what we're finding is that third triad, that lightning bolt, is being built into or absorbed into the traditional pharma structure. So I think that's the dynamic. And it's very important for people in startups to be vocal and be engaged on, on tools like social media so that these relationships can be built. It's, it's no longer about control. It's about collaboration. And the collaboration between startups and large structured companies um, is an important dynamic. The next thing that I wanted to ask, uh, if you know, uh, an example of a very successful startup that would go through a pharma or any other accelerator, I would kind of say that a lot of times uh, these are just small solutions that, um, don't have a wider application. Well, I think that's, a, that's a complicated question because it's just not, it's the integration of an idea into a life science company through an accelerator is not just one point in time. For example, some ideas are very early and the idea is not well established or even not well formed. 
in those instances, there's, um, you know, I think that that's both risky and secure in the sense that you can receive funding and you can have a good infrastructure. But oftentimes the idea tends to be developed in the context of a more traditional pharma company. A successful company that I like to speak about is AliveCore, a company founded by a cardiologist by, by Dave Albert, who created a very simple EKG machine that works with your smartphone. And this idea was well-developed. And then they've partnered with appropriate larger organizations to find clinical validation. Sometimes, you know, digital health innovation, once it's put into the maelstrom of big pharma, where there's regulatory and, and science and marketing and, and senior management, it's hard for that idea to maintain a, a single-minded purpose or a crystallized promise, if you will. Healthcare as such is definitely a complicated industry with so many uh, stakeholders, regulations and everything you have to take into account before you, you succeed. And that is not contributing in a positive way to, uh, to innovation. But in terms of accelerators and in, in terms of innovation, uh, one thing that I always like to, to mention is that I find, uh, a good approach, um, from the perspective of the big medical centers in the US where uh, they have the perfect environment for clinical trials. They know exactly what the needs are for the patients. And then they uh, try to fuel innovation inside and support it and develop solutions that are from the start addressing the, the real problems. I, I think that's a very good model. Um, we see that at organizations like the Cleveland Clinic, where they provide an ecosystem for innovation. In another way, and I'm going to be the contrarian here, it's horrible. Why? Henry Ford once famously said, and I think he never even said this, but he suggested that if I want, if I ask my customers what they want, they'll tell me I need a faster horse. The question is, given a hierarchical and rigid medical structure like today's large hospital groups, is that the point where we will find new thinking or will that become an echo chamber? I think that if you want to do proof of concept testing, um, it's a powerful spot. I think you can move things quickly in a system like that. And, and also because they are aware of the fact that it can become a bit of an echo chamber, I think that large hospital systems and accelerators in that context need to take special care to recognize that they may be more conservative than they even think they are. Yeah, that's true because uh, you're living in a certain reality. Doctors are already burdened with the things that they need to do and it's hard to then additionally burden them with a new reality that might be potentially better but needs the adoption time and time for people to change and get used to the new things. I agree, and, and I, I believe that, you know, in the context of clinical medicine, again, clinical medicine is different because it's, it's not just a new widget in your kitchen. It's about patient care, and sometimes it's about life and death. And we see this, whether it be a device or whether it be a pharmaceutical uh, product, a, a, a drug, an antibiotic, that many clinicians are comfortable with something that is similar but different. And oftentimes when we push innovation into that space. We look at something that is fundamentally different and 
Sometimes that will attract their attention. Other times it goes against sort of fundamental nature of clinical practice. One other interesting part about the innovative process, even in the context of an accelerator, is that we have to recognize two fundamental areas. Number one is we cannot have a company full of disruptors. We cannot have a, collabor- a collaboratory or a accelerator or a hospital where everyone is a disruptor because nothing gets done. Mm-hmm. So when we find innovation, we have to have peacemakers. We have to have accommodators. We have to have negotiators. And the other, just to come full circle on that, in the context of innovation, everyone who's an innovator is not always Elon Musk. They're not always Steve Jobs. They're not bold innovators with a vision who will stand up. And and this is particularly true in the context of healthcare, where maybe the idea comes from a, a fragile parent who has a child with cancer. But we have to recognize that sometimes innovations come from people like Nikola Tesla, who are brilliant innovators but are fragile souls, and that the system can crush innovation and innovators. So it's very important to recognize the power of the idea may be muted by the hegemony of a bold system. What do you find as most inspiring um, in your latest research? I I believe that, that big data will become the third fundamental window into humanity in the sense that the first window into humanity was the telescope. And Copernicus taught us two important lessons. One is that that the earth is not the center of the universe. And and maybe we will learn that the physician is not the center of the health universe. But he also taught us about blasphemy, that great ideas meet with tremendous. The second window was the microscope that allowed us to see a world that was largely unseen, that we are made of cells, that there exist microbes. And that allowed us to really advance knowledge and even even issues around health, such as uh, uh, disease and, and, and microbial theory. I believe that the third window will be data itself, that the ability to look at data now is being enhanced from a variety of perspectives. Number one is that we can store it. Five, ten years ago, the management of data and the storage of data was a fundamental issue. We, we can't store it, so what good is generating it? With the emergence of sophisticated analytics, including AI and machine learning, we can now provide the analytics that need to take a deep look into into data. There's an expression um, over in the United States. um, I think it was a a Broadway show called Six Degrees of Separation. The premise was that we are all connected to the American actor Kevin Bacon by five people. So I know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows Kevin Bacon. And it's that six degrees of separation that I think is applicable to big data. And I'm going to flip it around and say it's six degrees of connection. But it's even more interesting that because it's not six, it's five, it's four, it's three. And what we're beginning to see is if you give me three pieces of data, let's let's make it up just for fun. Mm -hmm. If you could tell me the RR variability of your heart rate, in other words, the, the, the space between each heartbeat and how that varies from beat to beat day after day after day. And then tell me the number of steps you take and then combine that with the number of times you open your refrigerator every day. I can tell you if you'll get metabolic syndrome by the age 50. So the point I'm making here is that the ability to combine data points that are unusual will give us the ability to see things 
that will have tremendous diagnostic and prognostic value. The question that arises here then is who benefits from the data once we decide the data has value. And in that sense, what I found extremely interesting was that World Economic Forum uh, actually already in 2011 marked personal data as a new asset class. Yes, I think that number one, um, that th this is a discussion that actually is starting to bubble up. I recently wrote in Forbes on my column about the construct of data as property and that, that we need to change that and look at that my data, whether it be travel data, whether it be financial data, whether it be clinical data, is something that I intrinsically own. And this is, this is a, a fundamental shift. Now think about what happens. Your data and my data in a life science perspective might be worth a hundred bucks a year um, to, to a life science industry. But if I have a rare cancer, my data might be worth $5,000 a year. So the ability to monetize data across a variety of social structures, whether it be cities, countries, third world, might be an interesting revenue stream. Especially with uh, blockchain and new ideas around the token economics and the value of data, this could potentially, if it becomes true, be a real paradigm shift for uh, seriously ill patients. If you're sick and if you can somehow get at least something out of the data due to your sickness, that might potentially uh, lessen or decrease the financial burden of your uh, medical care. I, I I agree with you 100. percent um, it, it is you know it's emerging as data ownership as a fundamental human right, yeah. and you know there are companies now um, who are looking at this from 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 a functional perspective around data acquisition and sharing to legal perspectives. How do we quantify data as as more of a a commodity or or a uh, uh, an asset class. So it's I think that that will change things and have you know life science companies really take a, a look at data. And, and here's the interesting thing: it's not only the the fundamental aspect of of data as property, but we recognize that depersonalized data, which is the type of data most life science companies use, these large data sets are probably not really depersonalized. The nature of the data itself and its context can be repersonalized using fairly simple methodologies. I really wonder how the whole uh, issue around data and quantified self is going to play out in, in public or in a more general sense, because I was looking at the quantified self, um, web page. So the community in 2016, uh, from 2007 grew to 70,000 members around the world. Although it's still growing, I found that number quite low. So, you know, it's uh, with wearables and with the idea that you want to track your health, it, it usually only lasts for a very limited period of time. And then you just, you know, don't want to pay too much attention to your health. Again, that's a complicated question. Um, when we talk about that 70,000, 
we already are already being quantified. We already live in the world of quantification. We just don't know it. We don't recognize it and we don't utilize it. So I would say that the number of people who are quantified um, is is in the billions. And whether that be our travel, um, traveling on an airplane or even traveling through a car using a system, a Google system like Waze, our healthcare is largely quantified. Our prescribing, prescribing habits and drug use is largely quantified. So to me, for many people like the 70,000 that you mentioned, it's, it's not it, – it's a – it's it's a bit of a game right now. It's it's an option versus an imperative. Once once we recognize that quantification, such as genetic quantification at birth, will help you pick the best selection of, let's say, vaccines or let's say antibiotics for a four or five year old child with otitis media. Once that becomes a, a key choice for superior therapeutics, I'll see the, the shift will change. Athletic trackers that we wear today, that the, 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 the proverbial 10,000 steps is interesting, but it's kind of arbitrary. And, and that right now is an athletic option. If we can shift that 10,000 steps into an interesting analysis of tremor or gait abnormalities seen in movement disorders or looking at Instead of steps, we look at gesture as it relates to eating and smoking, and we can use that information to help people stop smoking. Then it becomes much more interesting and powerful. We need to move from options to imperatives, and that, that, that's really where, where big data help can help push forward. Do you think it's always going to be an option to have data collected about you or are we just uh, heading in the direction where you will have nothing to say in that sense? Because if you think about the IoT devices that are around us, or if you think about simple recommendation algorithms that are out there and how much uh, the social media know about you based on your activity, uh, we are already seeing that we are kind of losing control in that sense. I don't, I don't think we're losing control. I think we're going through a tumultuous time where control is being reevaluated. And certainly the standards of privacy are changing, that it's no longer the same standards we used 100 years ago where no one knew what my house looked like. Today we go to Google Maps and we can take a look at my house. But also we are really at a bit of an inflection point or a precipice to privacy where the domain of data might shift back to the consumer. And once that happens, I think we will see these things change. We'll also have a certain gray zone of data. There will be some aspects of our data or, or by the data that is, is, is the exhaust of some activity that we will defer as, as not relevant. We'll certainly have some aspects of our data, let's say health data or, or genetics or something like that, be, be shifted back to the owner, to the rightful owner, and, and they will provide the basis for approval of that data. And, and that opens up a whole other industry. We may have other intermediaries who allow us to leverage a blockchain dynamic to manage privacy of data. So maybe we are heading to the future where data gathering is not going to be an option. But on the other hand, with the privacy laws and thinking about the data value, we can at least achieve a world where all the data that is gathered is controlled by the user. Yeah, look, data gathering is not an option now. I mean, you talk about a future world where data data gathering is is 
is the reality in which we live. And it's been that way for many, many years. People are just starting to understand the nature of data gathering and analytics. What do you think about uh, mobile healthcare apps? They were a big boom at the beginning. They keep rising. If you look at the numbers of available mHealth apps in app stores, however, the, the usage is not following. And on the other hand, uh, the apps that are succeeding are becoming more sophisticated and like a support tool to something else. Yes, I, I've seen the data, you know, just a, a single digit percentage of apps are actually used and there are a variety of issues around that. One is that oftentimes apps are built around the notion of a novelty. They're built around something that has no real clinical utility. The, the efficacy of it as a health app is marginal or still disputed. So I think that we have to really find the signal from the noise. And isn't, isn't that the nature of innovation? I think we should have more health apps. Let's, let's keep exploring them. Let's have thousands upon thousands that don't get used because ultimately we may find one that has a unique observation that can be used. You know, that's the nature of innovation. That's where, where kids in colleges and, and moms and dads with children who have life-threatening diseases are going to the well and creating innovation on their own. So I wouldn't criticize it. I would look at it in the context of innovation. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's not really about a critique, more of a, an observation and trying to figure out uh, how market is developing. But in any innovation, when you start looking it up close, you see that it takes years for, for market to crystallize. And just because there's a lot of hype at the beginning, that's that doesn't mean that the solutions are not going to stabilize or that everything's going to be be useless. And, and another interesting observation is in today's world, it's been said that if it works, it's already obsolete. And the go-to-market timing of some of these apps or devices you know, can be a year or two or three. And, and whether we do a clinical trial, you know, a validation trial, or just chasing dollars, sometimes it takes a year or two to get adequately funded. You're finding that these devices or these apps are already old. And that's why, you know, in many instances, it's, it's people who talk about the idea of failing fast mm -hmm. and moving forward. So we have to look at innovation in the context of exponential change. And, and that's a problem. Uh, one technology that's been uh, attracting a lot of attention lately um, is the um, uh, speech or audio recognition technology. What do you what do you think about that? I just recently read the CNBC report how you know even if you have speech recognition software that could potentially help decrease uh, the friction in communication between the doctor and the patient when the patient visits the pa the doctor at the moment in order to have that um, in a reliable form you need people in the background that are transcribing it manually. It's an interesting idea. Um, we we started off with the keyboard. Then, then we entered a mouse, and now we have touchscreen. And I think our ability to interface and, and acquire data, you know, will now live in the virtual world, but also in speech. And Ray Kurzweil with DragonSpeak has been talking about voice recognition for a long, long time. So that's that's not new. It's the back end that is exciting to me. It's the analytics. It's the processing. So now we can we can listen to speech. And we can infer things that are not even part of the overt conversation. For example, certainly a history and physical is, a, is an important part of, 
of the clinical exam. And being able to transcribe that and capture all the nuances of that is powerful and helps physicians be more engaged and provide eye contact with their patients. But subtle modulation of voice, word choice, can, can lead us diagnosing depression or even early stage Parkinson's disease. So I think the application of voice and health is extraordinary. It's not just convenience. I think that we will find very, very deep-rooted advantages where a patient says something and then, and then artificial intelligence can process that mm-hmm. from a diagnostic perspective, but also from an analytic perspective and connect that to, gee, they, they didn't say that a year ago or they didn't say that two years ago. And now we're seeing a trend in the number of times patients say the word pain. This visit, they mentioned the word pain 17 times. Last month, it was 12 times. And a year ago, it was one time. So even the ability to quantify linguistics is, is very interesting. So to me, Voice is great. Voice is here. Voice is, is, is being acquired in almost any modality from the smartphone to Alexa, but it's really the back-end analytics that, that will provide the really, really interesting aspects of voice. Yeah, or if you think about analyzing how people say things, that's probably a, a completely new area of, of data. There's, a, there's an app now called Moody's, and it'll allow you to speak into your smartphone and it'll tell you what mood you're in. Listening is, a, is, a, is an important skill. Now, you know, the use of the stethoscope, going back to, to France hundreds of years ago and, and Lenec inventing the stethoscope, that was an auditory signal. Now we're actually seeing that flipped on its head and that auditory signals are now being visual. So instead of just listening to the subtle intricacies of a, of a systolic ejection murmur or an S3 gallop, we can see the waveform and we can capture that waveform so I can put it right into the chart. So it's no longer just a rumor as to hearing an occasional murmur. It's that actual physical presence. So here we're seeing not only the application of voice, but the use of hearing moving into a visual modality. In terms of digital health technologies, gadgets and everything, do you use anything to quantify your health or how do you embody digital health enthusiasm into your life? I have uh, started looking at steps and activity and sleep, but I'm also doing it um, in association with my two nine-year-old daughters, my twin daughters. What we're doing is experimenting with Fitbit and Fitbit Ace for kids now. Because I think that building healthy habits around activity and exercise and sleep is important. It's, it's not so much the overt quantification of steps, but it's recognizing that we could understand what we're doing and building habits early will establish the important role of, of the quantified self. I recognize that some people feel that, oh my goodness, we're, we're now beginning to quantify our children and isn't that a bit too much? I understand that point and I'm not willing to say it either way, but I want to explore it and look at, at how the quantification of a family can actually lead to new insights and establish us as not, not as individuals, but as an organism, as a family organism that eats together, that works together, that plays together, and maybe some of that combined data can lead, lead to new uh, insights around the family. So that's one of the things that I'm working on now. This was the 14th episode of Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the conversation, do take a few moments to rate or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you're interested in hearing thoughts of other digital health influencers, you can listen to some other conversations on this channel. Episode 1 of Faces of Digital Health features the medical futurist Bertalan Mishko, and episode 13 of Medicine Today on Digital Health, as this podcast used to be named, features Manish Juneja. If you wish to dig in the issue of data analysis, check out episode 13 on AI or episode 9 on precision medicine. Stay tuned, and if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified about the next episode automatically.